When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I was um, huffing deodorant, aerosol deodorant. So that was my drug of choice at like 14, 15 years old. Yeah. I know, it's crazy. Um, but a kid in school had told me that you can get high by huffing aerosol. Jason Lachance, your host of Knocking Doors Down here. I struggled with addiction depression and anxiety and grew up in a home of trauma that included a parent who was also in active addiction and through my recovery i got excited to talk about people that have been through amazingly adverse situations and turned them into their greatest advantage and that's what knocking doors down is all about and i'm joined by myra diaz gomez aka may valentine if you're a fan of the national wrestling alliance we get into her trauma which includes the loss of her father at a young age whom she was very close to her deep dive down a path of depression utilizing a variety of drugs and one of them that she shares you're going to be incredibly surprised that i've never heard of until this conversation mayra was going down a bad path that included drugs alcohol and looking outward for validation from others to fill that inside void we talk about her breaking point when she decided she was going to seek total sobriety how she got involved with the National Wrestling Alliance and the connection with Billy Corgan of the Smashing Pumpkins and laughs and of course those random questions and she leaves us with a beautiful final thought. While you're checking knocking doors down out, don't forget to hit the subscribe button and if you get a lot out of this podcast, share with a friend and don't forget the archive of interviews we have. Bam Margera, Brandon Novak, Kat Von D, Charlie Sheen, Edward Furlong, Kelly Osborne. the list goes on and on of amazing guests that have been on the podcast sharing how they have found purposeful lives. Speaking of purpose, how about a lifestyle brand with purpose? 5150 LTM. That's right. Not only is it a lifestyle brand that can fit whatever it is you're trying to achieve in life, but they give back to the community. And you, the listener of Knocking Doors Down, get 20% off every time you shop at 5150LTM. All you have to do is use the code KDD20 at checkout and get 20% off. And how does 5150 give back to the community? Portions of the sales benefit the Carlos Vieira Foundation. Their three amazing programs, the race to end the stigma, the race for autism, and the race to be drug free. More on the Carlos Vieira Foundation, go to carlosvierafoundation.org. So there's a beautiful country. It's one of my all-time legends is from there. My favorite heroes, Arrington Senna. They have very interesting waxing techniques and beautiful scenery. <laughs> and of course, uh, Mayra Diaz Gomez, uh, born in Rio, Brazil. Uh, thanks for jumping on with me. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I want to throw a little humor in there. Plus, I got to sneak in some Formula One. I'm a Formula One nut, so I can see that. <laughs> yeah, Senna was my was one of my heroes. I'm looking forward to uh, some more NWA action because uh, we do have. Are you a wrestling fan? 
I worked in it for a few years as a commentator. I did not know that. How amazing is that? What company did you work for? Uh, it's called Lucha Extreme out of Fresno. That's awesome. Yeah, so uh, like for instance, uh, Jr. Kratos was was part of it. I don't know if you know Jr. Kratos works with me in the MWA. Yeah, I work yeah. with him all the time. Great dude, love him. Yeah, I actually got a funny story. Uh, maybe I'll hold it for later so we don't turn it into total wrestling. How he and Jeff Cobb worked me into a match, and so I got involved ever in one wow. match. But fun story That's I'll good. share with you later. Um. But I want to get into that. Like, it just surprises me how you got into pro wrestling, but uh, also working with Billy Corgan, who uh, who we mutually are fans of his music. But uh, let's jump back a little to childhood because, I mean, you come from uh, – is entertainment royalty the right way to put it? I mean, your father was a pro- prolific writer in, in Brazil, your mom, actress. I feel like I can't say that myself, uh, but – Yes, that's pretty accurate. Yeah, my dad wrote some of the most famous soap operas of all time in Brazil, widely recognizable to anybody in Brazil, really, and is still, you know, very remembered and respected until today. Yeah. Yeah. How did, uh, I, I mean, you went through that loss. You were 14 when your dad passed? I was 11. 11. Okay. 11. I was a little off in time. Yeah. You know, so many of us and, and people that I've had on here, I mean, everyone from Charlie Sheen, Kat Von D to everybody, we, you know, I, I have yet to find somebody that addiction really took hold that didn't experience some sort of trauma uh, in childhood, be it big T or little T. Yeah, absolutely. That That was my trauma for sure. Up until then, I felt like I was a very happy child. You know, I lived in a happy home. Uh, creative home, uh, very supported by my parents. You know, I lived in a world of literature and theater and television. So I was surrounded by artists the whole time. Uh, my older brothers were musicians. So I had a very great, happy childhood up until this very traumatic event happened to me when I was 11 years old. Yeah. Was there at that time, I mean, we've pushed forward so much with, with mental health and yet there's still a long way to go. What, what was the coping process for you, your siblings, your mom? I mean, was there really one? Um, so the way that I found out that my father had passed was through an internet article. Oh, so I woke up to go to school that day and, uh, my aunt who lived with us at the time, told us that our parents had been in a car accident, but they were in the hospital. Mm. And those were instructions from the television network that my dad was a writer for, like the major television network in Brazil called Globo. Somehow they thought that we should be prepared slowly to receive these really bad news. Um, But I was very smart. Uh, I already knew how to connect to the internet. And that was the first thing that I did. I logged in and the homepage on our computer was a news page. And it was the headline news that my dad had died in a car accident. And I read that and saw photos of it. And so at that moment, I was extremely angry and I felt very betrayed. And it immediately ignited rebelliousness in Mm me uh, where nobody could tell me what to do. Um, But I feel like for the first couple of years, I was still very young. I was pretty much still a child. So... It was easier to control me, per se, 
but once I, I hit like puberty, I was 14 years old and nobody could tell me what to do anymore. Um, and my coping process pretty much was to start using drugs and start drinking and live my own life. Nobody can tell me what to do, yeah. you know, and that's how everything began pretty much. I, I know you're like me. You're a big uh, rock music fan. Definitely. Like in reflect, I look at like Motley Crue, one one of my all time favorite bands. You know, uh, Guns and Roses, Nikki Six, uh, uh, Duff McKagan, yeah. Idols. You know, I'm a shitty bass player, but I play bass. And it's ironic for me now to like reflect back and go, boy, I was kind of watching those guys, especially like Nikki pounding a bottle of whiskey on stage, and then to come like this weird full circle. Do you kind of looking back? Oh, your love for that go that. That was a reflection of your rebellion, or it kind of fueled the rebellion, like in a in a symbiotic kind of way. I would say both. I was a rock fan since I was pretty much eleven years old. Um, I think my dad was still alive. I was already listening to rock and roll. I think the first album that I ever listened to, I found it uh, in my parents' stuff, was uh, Voodoo Lounge, Rolling Stone. Uh, so pretty much grew up being a rock child and looked up to rock stars you know looked up to motley Crue and guns and roses and marilyn manson and several bands of the 90s as well uh papa roach uh, one of my favorites as well yeah. um and pretty much they were my idols you know drugs sex rock and roll this is what rock stars do this is the life i'm going to live and it was both what i was what i already was myself and the influence that they had on me and it is really funny to look back because so many of them are sober now. And I'm glad for that because now I have that as an example as well. You know? <laughs> uh, yeah, me too. I, you know, I haven't spoken to him yet on this podcast, but I was able to speak to Nikki Six about that, you know, and he kind of got a good chuckle out of it and was just kind of like, you know, keep working it, man. Keep the path. So, yeah, absolutely. Life is odd in that one. Like just rock and roll was what life was about, you know? Yeah. Like that's what I that's what I aimed my aims to be. I wanted my life to be like the life of these rock stars in my posters. I, and I can relate to that. It, it, and plus it made me feel I don't know about you like understood by somebody. Absolutely. That that's why music is such a big part of it because when you feel so alone and for me I grew up in a school where I didn't really relates a lot to the people that I went to school with. It was a very like high society sort of environment where everybody pretty much had to be the same and look the same. And I was different. You know, I like wearing black. I like rock and roll and I got into drugs really young. And so I did feel different and I did feel like lonely and music understood me, yeah. you know, so definitely. Yeah. Yeah. For me, it was, it was, it was music and film for sure. That just that escapism. Yeah. You know, like people ask me, I, I don't know about you. I'm an introvert naturally, but when I can play a character, it's like, it comes out like, okay, I can, I can do this, but otherwise I'm kind of pretty reserved, quiet and within myself. Right. I understand that perfectly. Let me ask you those because you're talking about the school. So you went, you didn't start learning English until you went to like a high school. It was an American school, right? No, I, I joined the American school in second grade. So I, I learned oh. English in the second grade. Yeah. 
I grew up pretty much all my classes were in English and all my writing stuff was mostly in English. I actually spoke more English than Portuguese, even though I lived in Brazil because I went to the American school and my mom just pretty much wanted me to be able to speak English and have opportunities, you know, anywhere in the world if I wanted to. Yeah. So you mentioned around 14, the drugs started to come in. What, what were they at that time? So I, I think it started pretty much with like weed and alcohol. Uh, but then eventually I started experimenting with pretty much everything. Mm. And like I was telling you, to me, it was like a very glamorized thing. I wanted to do drugs because they were cool and they made me cool. You know, they made me feel cool. You know, they made me feel less intimidated, less shy, more outgoing, more able to talk to people, uh, more able to talk to guys. Um, and so I really love drugs, putting it very simply. And I told it, I said this in a, an interview recently, I actually remember buying a book when I came to the United States about drugs and just going through the book and going like, I've done this one, I haven't done that one. And I wanted to do them all. And I'd have like these parties in my own bedroom where I invite a bunch of kids and have tons of drugs and have like kissing games and to this crazy stuff it was like this really fun time of like experimentation and rebelliousness and you know like enjoying youth yeah. pretty much in my perspective at that time <laughs> what, what, what kind of a house were you living in that you could have I had a whole house. yes i lived in a huge huge apartment so like my parents room room was like in one side of the house and my room was in a completely different side of the house so i could be like completely separate from my parents and just tell them, like, hey, I'm having, tell my mom, my dad had passed away already, but tell my mom, like, I'm having a party, do not come anywhere near my room, <laughs> you know, <laughs> my mom would always find a way of coming by, but, <laughs> you know, it was a huge house, and I had a huge bedroom, and a lot of people fit in that bedroom. Oh, that's funny. Uh, but how, was your mom, I Okay, so as a parent now, I've got a 14 and a 13-year-old. Like, if one of my kids told me that, I'd be like, the fuck you are. <laughs> was, was mom still kind of struggling with the passing of your dad, or was it just... Oh, yes, and my mom was super young, so my mom was, like, in her early 30s. Oh, wow. So she had lost, like, the love of her life in this car accident that she was also in. You know, she was in the hospital. She had her recovery, and she was going through the loss herself you know and now she's like super young she has to manage this entire like estate pretty much and you know take care of her two really young uh kids but my mom being very young she was also like cool you know she liked doing stuff with us she liked going to concerts with me we would travel together and so my mom always tried to be like our friend, I feel like, rather than like an imposing authority, because as an authority, it would never work out. Like I would sleep with my mom to death if my mom told me what to do or you can't do this, you can't do that. I'd be grounded all the time and find a way of running away. You know how many times I ran away to different cities. So by trying to control me, my mom was never able to. So she kind of tries to be my friend instead. But I don't think that she realized at that point, like that drugs were that involved in the situation. She thought it was more harmless than it was probably. Sure. 
The Knockin' Doors Down book shares all the history and inspiration behind the Carlos Vieira Foundation and how it all started. All proceeds from the book benefit the Carlos Vieira Foundation's Race to Be Drug-Free campaign. So what's that all about? Through the Race to Be Drug-Free campaign, Carlos Vieira Foundation raises awareness about drug abuse, donates to drug-free programs, and brings drug-free speakers into schools to educate youth. The Race to Be Drug-Free campaign's main program is the Gloves Not Drugs boxing program. This program is completely free for kids between the ages of 8 and 17 to learn discipline, strength, respect, camaraderie, and the art of boxing. The program was created to keep kids off the streets, out of gangs, and away from drugs. For more info and to get involved, check out carlosvierafoundation.org. And, and, and I see that because I work in, in nonprofit work, too, that a lot of parents, and, and I don't mean this in like such a like an insulting way, we we can, and I, I still have it with with myself, kind of clueless to some stuff, or, or you know, we'll do the not my kid, which is a dangerous thing to do. Now. Life is just a phase, you know. She's just going through this phase. Everything's fine, uh, but like my mom was very aware that I was uh, going through depression, and I I went through a lot of depression when I was young. I was always crying, and you know, I had a lot of like self hatred for myself so like I was always you know crying and telling my mom that I hate myself and I want to die you know I'd be constantly talking about wanting to die and you know no one loves me I'm alone you know I hate life I hate myself and I want to die so my mom was very aware that I was going through these feelings as a teenager I I can mirror that and I know for me a lot of it was being in the home of addiction with my father. And that wasn't just drugs, but it was sex, pornography, and um, having, you know, share before we hit record that I went through an instance of molestation. There was just like this empty thing of blaming myself uh, for for things that happened. I mean, w- yeah. was it kind of that? Was this post your, your dad's passing? I mean, what, what all of those feelings in retrospect? I feel like people would think of me as like a rebel without a cause. Mm. You know, I'm doing all this stuff to myself. You know, you you come from a great family, you know, you're you're well off, you know, you have access to education and pretty much anything you want and you're just doing this to yourself. You know, so that so there was always that attitude. And then in regards to the sexual assault that I went through when I was a teenager. Right. Um I was deeply blamed for that by everybody around me because I I was 15 years old and I had started having this affair with a guy in my school. I was a freshman and he was a senior and he had a girlfriend. So pretty much the judgment was about the fact that, you know, you're going out with a guy who has a girlfriend. So you know what you're getting yourself into. Or we warned you that this guy only wanted to have sex with you and you went out with him anyway. So I... Looking back, I don't remember having sympathy mm. from anybody. You know, I could be wrong. There could be a friend that watches this and go, hey, I was your friend. I was there. But looking back, mostly I did not feel any sympathy. Um, and that made me even more angry than I already was. And it made me feel like I had even less in common with the people that I went to school with. And I just wanted to get the fuck out. You know, I was ready to start living my life and my life is away from these people that don't understand. Yeah. Well, so at 15, I mean, 
you wanted to get out, but uh, you carried that gene that your dad had as a writer. Didn't you start your first book around then? Yeah. So I left school after the race. Mm. I didn't want to go to school anymore. I started using a lot of drugs like in school and in the school bathroom. And I just wanted to be expelled. I kept telling my mom, I don't want to go to the school anymore. I'm not going back because I would be really, really afraid of running into the guy in the hallway yeah. and things like that. And he was actually in um, one of my PE classes. So I remember I had like baseball with him. So like, I didn't want to go to school ever again. Um, so I made sure that I got expelled by like failing every class pretty much. And so by the end of the year, I was kicked out of school. Uh, my mom was very, very mad. She tried to put me in a different school, Brazilian school. Then it was even worse because then I had even less in common with everybody. Then I felt like a complete alien. Like I grew up in this American culture, speaking English, you know, and I have nothing, nothing in common with these people that I'm in school with now that know each other their whole lives. And I'm coming in like at 15, 16. So I stopped going to that school as well. I just run away from school, go to the mall. Somebody would drop me off and I instead of going inside the school, I'd leave. There was always like tricks not to go to school. Yeah. So eventually I told my mom, it doesn't matter where you put me, I'm not going to go. So like you have to make a decision that I'm going to be homeschooled because I'm not going to go to school again. And so I started getting homeschooled. My mom agreed to it eventually. I graduated like uh, from homeschool. Uh, and she's like, what are you going to do with your life? And that's when I told her I'm going to be a writer and I'm going to be a best-selling author. <laughs> <laughs> a wild dream for a 16-year-old. Uh, but she was actually really supportive of it because of my dad and, you know, our entire background. Like, my mom thought, this is great, you know, do this. And I told her I'm going to write about everything that happened, like dad dying, my depression, the drugs. The guy in school raping me. I'm going to write about all of this. And my mom said, I think that's amazing. Do it. So in six months, I wrote the book. Um, I wrote it like really, really quickly. Pretty much I was writing every night, drinking by the computer at home. Uh, and then my mom helped me find a publishing company. So yeah, by the time I was 16 years old, I got a publishing deal. <laughs> Uh, it was the biggest publishing company in South America and they read the book and they said that it was amazing and they thought that it would be a bestseller. And by the time I was 19, it was a bestseller. That's crazy. And it's still never been translated into English, right? I'm translating it right now. Are you? It's way too overdue. Yes. <laughs> Cause you kind of, yes. am I, am I wrong? And me reading about it, you take it, it it's like semi-autobiographical you almost put it in it to a fictitious yeah. context and probably to protect yourself and all those things it was mostly a memoir but i told people that it was half a memoir and half a half fiction because i was just really afraid of all the different people that i talked about and the different situations that i talked about coming to bite me in the ass did your mom with the situation with the rape stuff i mean i don't know how stuff works in brazil was there ever any point where she was contemplating any sort of legal action or recourse or was this just a situation there's no you know what it's really crazy because i few people have asked me that question before 
And for some reason, I don't know if it's because of the super misogynist culture that we grow up grow up in Brazil, but that was never an issue in anybody's mind. Wow. Nobody ever said, let's do something about this legally, ever. I don't remember that ever being something that was mentioned. I remember my mom going like, I'm going to kill this guy. You know, <laughs> but I don't remember anybody saying, let's, you know, do something about it. But also in Brazil, the culture is very different. You would never go to the police uh, because of a sexual assault. You know, there is, there is more of a fear of the police and a fear of the criminal system in Brazil because it doesn't really protect women. So I think for that reason, it wasn't even something that anybody thought about. And again, it was mostly like, you know what you were doing? You're going out with this guy. He's an asshole. He has a girlfriend. Why did you even call, invite him over? Now you're not going to see him ever again. I'm like, yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, that's... Uh... I'm sorry that that was how it went for you because that's, you that's know shitty. Crazy? I actually saw him once again after the rape. Really? You know, and that, that shows you the extreme lack of self-love and of codependency on a man giving me attention after my dad's death because that, that was, that's the issue that I deal with my whole life is I become very dependent on having the attention of a male or somebody you know, that's giving me that interest daily and i had feelings for this guy if i didn't have feelings i wouldn't you know have have been in this relationship um and i remember going out with him one more time uh not having sex with him but i remember sitting in the car and just like telling him like i know you're not gonna ever see me again and i can't remember really the conversation but i remember going out with him one more time and taking a drive with him in his car wow um and then eventually I called him uh, because it became a rumor in school that we had sex. And apparently he was telling people about it. And uh, I called him and co confronted him and said, like, what are you telling people? You're a fucking asshole. Look what you've done to me. You know, blah, blah, blah. And he basically just said, I never promised you anything. Uh. And that was it. You know what? I wish I could say I can't relate to you, but I can. I spent so much time looking for outward validation and thinking attention was love and looking for somebody else to fill the holes within me, you know, and, and really in retrospect, I think that greater than, than alcohol or, you know, whatever drugs I did experiment was the ultimate thing I had to get past. Like, you feel you are past that? Yeah, I'm actually, I'm in a pretty good place. I, I, I do. It's, it's taken some work. Like I said, I, you know, after work and recovery, I'm a 12 step guy. Um, you know, I went down that path of sex and love addiction to really look at it. Like, you know, like understanding that for me, you know, like the pornography stuff was a control thing, the relationship thing, which I don't know about you. I was pretty good at about two years was the max out point for most of my relationships after two years. It's like, it was, where's the next the next little thing, the next little fix to this. And it's the whole dopamine thing. You're like so searching for the dopamine in yeah. that external validation. Oh yeah. And those of us that struggle depression, I mean, I'm I'm completely convinced that maybe our brains don't produce dopamine, maybe like some other people that they don't. So, you know, we're looking for a hit. I've I've been in therapy for a long time and I am diagnosed with ADHD. 
And uh, as a woman with ADHD, I have come to understand that I have lower levels of dopamine um, and that I am consistently for the rest of my life looking for that. And I learned to not look for dopamine in self-destructive things. But it doesn't change the fact that I every day look for it somehow. And it, it may be in the form of like, I posted a photo and I really hope that people comment. I really hope that people like my photo. But every day, there is still that search of that external validation and that dopamine for yeah. me. Oh, I can really. And I think, though, I've I, I found, I don't know if you've done any, like, maybe support group stuff with any other people that have been through sexual trauma is is the, the numerous amount of us that do. Like, I have to. Like, this pot, like... You know, boy, that was an amazing conversation. Why haven't fifty thousand people listened to it? What the hell's wrong with you know? And it's like, you feel like there's something wrong with you. You know, it might simply be that someone's not on their phone. Someone's busy. You know, they didn't come on Instagram today. But you'll create this entire storyline of like, I don't matter. You know, no one cares about me. That wasn't that great. You know, I need to do more. That was not enough. What will I do next? <laughs> I'll do. I'm always in the. What am I gonna do next? Uh boy, all too familiar. All too familiar. It is. It is the absolute shit. Um, but yeah, we can get past. It. I mean, what work do you do now with it? What are some of the daily practices for you? Do you do you have any like I don't know mantra work? Is, is it reading you've done an amalgamation of things? Well, I've been in therapy for like six or seven years Mm. so I feel like therapy has helped me a lot and mostly I feel that understanding dopamine and the way that my brain works has helped me more than anything because I used to feel like you know I need to have sex I need to do this I need to do that and not understand why I felt these ways and feel like I'm crazy or really not just not understand where these needs and desires come from. And now that I understand, I feel like it's easier to recognize, oh, okay, my dopamine lowered because this event took place and now I am searching for dopamine and this is why I'm acting this way. So I try to rationalize the way that I'm feeling rather than acting impulse, which is another ADHD thing. So I think that understanding that has helped me the most. Yeah. Uh, but besides that, yeah, I do a lot of meditation. I actually meditate every night. Um, I light candles and um, I, I, I express gratitude for things that have happened and ask for things that I want. And I do tarot. I'm very like spiritually connected to. Um, but yeah, I think mostly therapy and just like understanding the way that my brain functions. Yeah. And I think that's an exploration that, that, every person needs to go down, not just those of us that have struggled with addiction issues. You know, the more we can understand ourselves and, and and again, not look outward for these inside problems to be fixed by something or someone else, you know, the better. I'm not there yet. I'm definitely (laughs) not there yet, but I'm aware of it. So at least that, at least that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm proud of you for that. But I, I, I can mirror what you say, you know, you said like, oh, you know, this thing and uh, a fix. And I, I mean, tell me if I'm wrong. I'm sure you've been there, too. Like in retrospect, like, oh, my God, I slept with that. Per- I don't even like that person. 
that was more me when I was a teenager. So mm. I'm really good with my impulses as an adult. I don't really have like like reckless sex or sex that I regret. Like I'm very, very picky with people that I get involved with nowadays. It's actually very, very hard for someone to even like get my interest, to be honest. It takes a lot for me to be even interested. But when I was younger, absolutely. I mean, an endless list of people that I look back and say, why? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that's a part of being young and dumb. I don't know. But uh, it is definitely a, a, the lesson learned. I'm, I'm happy that I'm not like that anymore, though. Like, I, yeah. I prefer the person that I am today, like, a lot. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. I'm I'm glad to hear that you were able to recognize that. And and thank you for sharing that. I think that's very valuable if there's any, um, you know, uh, even young men, but young women listening to is, uh, you know, I speak at high schools and I'm seeing that as a prevalent problem, you know, and it's, um, it's sad because they're, they're hurting. Well, when you're a teenager, you don't really have impulse control, you know, no. you don't have it at all. And and when you have ADHD, you basically function as a teenager. So it's very similar. Do you still like what's are you, uh, what is it the um, I forget what that movie was up the Disney movie with the dog where it's the squirrel runs by and he comes like squirrel you know are you are, is there still kind of a struggle of of remaining focused? And I ask because I think I have ADHD. I've just never been brave enough to see if I if that's valid. Uh, yeah, I struggle with attention a lot. Um, and that's the main reason why it's taken me so long to translate my book or even to write a new novel because it's been several years. In the past years, as uh, social media has kind of taken over our lives and so much of it is online and on Instagram and these little interactions that make our dopamine go up and down, up and down. So they make it very, very hard for me to concentrate. Like I can't write for long periods of time. I'm, I lose attention and I'm back on my Instagram checking. Someone liked, if someone messaged me. So I don't, I think I, not just for me, but for everybody with social media, it has become a lot harder for people with ADHD. And so I definitely still struggle with it. Um, I've been on a medication that I've tried uh, recently called Stratera. Mm. Um, it hasn't worked out great. So it's kind of a matter of let's try something else now. Um, but I definitely struggle with it. We got to put our best foot forward to try. Right. Um, but it, you, you, you brought up some of the interesting you talking about the, um, uh, being in a high school bathroom, using drugs, uh, and everything else. And I'm finding with more people that I talk to in different countries, it's kind of interesting, uh, like a, a woman I made a friendship with from South Africa, it, it differs from country to country at what some of those drug trends are. Yeah. I mean, what was it? What was it for you? I mean, it pot, obviously, most of us, that was, you know, one of the early things. I was um, huffing deodorant, aerosol deodorant. So that was my drug of choice at like 14, 15 years old. Yeah. I know. It's crazy. Um, but a kid in school had told me that you can get high by huffing aerosol. Yeah, yeah. And so first we tried like putting deodorant straight to our mouths to see if we would get high. And of course, it's the most disgusting thing in the whole planet. <laughs> so I came up with this idea where basically I, I 
invented this way of huffing deodorant that I'm sure other people around the world have also thought that they invented. Um, but you basically put the bottle of the deodorant in a plastic bag and you tie the bag really tight. You make a little hole on the bag and you make the bottle uh, face opposite from where the hole is. So the aerosol is essentially sticking to the plastic bag. Mm. And so you only get... Um, I'm sorry, the perfume, the gross part is sticking to the bag, and you only get the aerosol in your mouth. And that makes you really, really, really high. Yeah. Really fast. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, we called it whippets here, but most of the people, what they would do is they would take like, like uh, bakeries could get it where where they you it actually had the the nitrous was separate of the whipped cream, and so they would they would take that, and I I believe Stevo kind of went down that route from jackass but yeah the whippets and uh, that shit always scared me i had a cousin that he was into that man and he would <laughs> i was like what the fuck no i'm good i'll just stick with booze i'm fine right so like i i did this a lot when i was a teenager and like i taught it to so many different kids at school and at parties like i'm sure you could talk to hundreds of people that went to school in brazil that would talk about uh huffing deodorant yeah. Because I would be like, hey, let's go to the bathroom. I know this new drug. Uh, I'm going to teach it to you. And we would get high on that. And because it was accessible, like, it wasn't like in Brazil, like, it, it, drugs are illegal, obviously. Uh, like, marijuana is illegal. Um, you'd have to go up the slums or something like that to get uh, marijuana. So with deodorants, it was like, we just go to the mall and go into the pharmacy and buy deodorant. So it was perfect, yeah. you know. You didn't have to go through any hassle and drug dealers and crazy shit. So, <laughs> you just go to the mall and go to the pharmacy. And then eventually, my mom found out about the deodorant. And well, it shows the desperation we'll go to escape to escape those feelings. Yeah, definitely. And then, you know, you get that high, you go up in the clouds, and next thing you know, you're depressed again. And then you use it again. Yeah. But we like that spike, right? We like those spikes and, and yeah. to the point where we live for it. At what point did it stop working? Because you're, what, uh, three years sober now? Two years and five months. Hell yeah, I love it. Uh, so we, we were pandemic sober. I fell off yeah, during the pandemic. I, I got to be on. Well, everybody knows. All my listeners know, but... Uh, yeah, I, I had almost two years again. I, I seem to have this cycle. So this is the first time I'm actually over two years. But you found it during the pandemic. Well, yes, but because I started drinking so much during the pandemic as well, oh. uh, where I was waking up in the morning and having tequila like at 9 a.m., like literally, and having tequila all day sometimes sleeping with a tequila bottle next to my bed because in that beginning where we didn't know what was going on you know it felt hopeless it felt like darkness it felt like am I ever going to see anyone again and like for me and for you or anybody that feels that loneliness it was extreme loneliness and it was fear of like never connecting to people again and being alone being forgotten not being loved like all those feelings coming back and then just drinking a lot of tequila. Yeah. And because I had been in uh, wrestling training for the previous year, 
I had been like really disciplined with like dieting and working out. I was doing the hardest workouts of my entire life. And I had a lot of responsibility. And so when lockdown began, my immediate thought was great. I have no responsibility. I can drink, I can eat, and I don't have to work out. There we go. Yeah. And so it began. You know, I just drank and ate at home until it really became unbearable because I, I've been suffering from panic attacks uh, for several years as well. Um, and my panic attacks just got completely out of control during the lockdown. And for me, the panic is always about I am alone, nobody loves me, and I'm going to die. Mm. And it started happening every night. And so when it when it came to a point where it was it had happened for like ten nights in a row, my therapist basically demanded me to go to a psychiatrist. She said, "I'm demanding you to do something about this." And she's right because I was going to kill myself on one of those nights. You know, yeah. the desperation that I was feeling. And if you know about panic attacks, you know they're uncontrollable. There's nothing that can snap you out of it. You know. And it's that feeling of I'm going to die or I want to die. Yeah. And, you know, um, so I did look for a doctor. And the first thing he told me was, we need to get you sober because uh, we might be able to stop the panic attack. We might find out that the alcohol abuse is connected to the panic attack. And so let's get you sober. And it was like such a simple way that he put it like, if you stop drinking, you can stop having panic attacks. And to me, the panic attacks were the worst thing that I've ever experienced in my life because I would wake up in the morning and be afraid of going through the day and then getting to nighttime when the panic attack would start again. Yeah. So I never wanted anything more than to not have those panic attacks and to not feel those feelings. And so I said, okay, try to get me sober. And thank God I've been sober ever since. I love it. That's awesome. But again, it's that yeah. illustration of that cycle, right? Yeah. I mean, I I never knew that I suffered from panic attacks. And then when I started to realize, and it's gotten much better, my anxiety continues to improve, but it's that cycle. It's like panic attack, uh, drinking will take it away, but drinking actually drives a panic attack. And so you end up in this loop. I mean, it, it really is that desperation. Like I don't, you know, any of this. Yeah, and ever since I stopped drinking, I do not have panic attacks. I don't have panic attacks anymore. Wow, that's great. Yeah, and even on my like sobriety apps, like when I started on the apps where it says, like, why am I sober? I wrote, because I never want to have a panic attack ever again. And sometimes I open the app and I look at that line that I wrote and I say, that's it. Like, you know, I never want to have those panic attacks ever again. And like I was blessed with the opportunity to have that taken away. When this started, so w when lockdown started, you had already jumped into uh wrestling course NWA working with Billy Corgan and so many wonderful, talented people, some that I've met or know per personally. Uh, but that was a hell of a jump. I mean, yeah. we've got we've got a history of writing. I mean, mom was an actress, dad was a, a, a prolific writer. I wish some of his work was translated or I could find it. I mean, we're you know, writing. You had been doing modeling. Uh, I believe you had just went through a divorce just prior to that, too. Where was the jump to? 
I'm going to start professional wrestling because, I mean, were you a fan as a kid or was this just something? Yeah, I didn't grow up watching wrestling at all. Like wrestling was not popular in Brazil. Um, And I feel like it's very similar to the moments in my life where I dropped out of school and decided to be a writer. And it's in these moments of like rock bottom and extreme Mm. depression which I was going through at that time due to my divorce, that I have these wild ideas. And I think that it's my brain struggling to get the dopamine back up, you know, because the brain doesn't want to stay in that state. And so it will like desperately look for something. And in my case, it has always been these crazy ideas. I am going to drop out of school and become a best-selling author. I'm 21 years old. I'm going to move to Hollywood to become a music journalist. And now I'm in my 30s, uh, watching WWE on television. Uh, I was in a deep depression as well because of my separation. I was living by myself for the first time. So, you know, I'm dealing with panic attacks. You know, I'm dealing with I'm lonely. I'm Nobody loves me and I'm going to die. It's always those three things for me. And I'm watching WWE on TV. I'm watching Becky Lynch and Charlotte Flair and the ladies uh the ladies match and i thought oh my god like i felt so inspired these women are so beautiful so powerful so strong and to simply watch them gave me so much inspiration where i thought if i if i could be like them i think that i would be happy and this is me like trying to find a way of finding self-worth not through another person not through a guy, not through this, not through that. I thought, if I can learn how to wrestle, and if I can become a professional wrestler, and if I can be a, like a, essentially a superhero like they are, then I think that I would feel happy about myself. Huh. And I didn't know what I was going to do with my life at that time. I was, I had worked as a music journalist for like 10 years, but music journalism was kind of dying with like magazines don't really exist anymore, you know. You don't make the same amount of money, this and this and that. The whole industry changed. So I wasn't really, you know, uh, working the way that I used to work before. Uh, and wanted to in- reinvent myself and find something new. And I Googled, how do you become a professional wrestler? <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, you have to go to wrestling school. <laughs> so I found a wrestling school in Vegas. It was the first school I found, Future Stars of Wrestling. Yeah. I emailed them. And they said, yeah, come down, try it out. And so I was like, okay, I'm moving to Vegas uh, two days from now uh, to become a professional wrestler. What What is like your siblings and your mom thinking? I mean. Well, my mom is used to me being this person who has these okay. crazy ideas. Right? So at first she was like, what? <laughs> you know, you're going to fight? My mom didn't understand wrestling at all which is hilarious because my mom watches NWA every week now. So she about the matches. It's just so funny to me. Uh, but, you know, she's like, well, you're going to fight. You're going to get hurt. This and this and that. What are you doing? But at the same time, like, she was supportive too. And she thought, like, you know, if you can find a passion in a sport, that's amazing for you. That's amazing for your depression and everything else. She always wanted me to be passionate about of course, you know, throughout my whole life. Um, so she supported it uh, somewhat. You know, when she, when she started seeing the videos of me in school, actually training and actually doing stuff, she, she saw that this was a real thing. 
then she was like, okay, I understand. Um, but yeah, so I moved to Vegas and I had also watched the documentary about the Glow Girls. Have you seen it? The doc- I, I, right. I, so I'm older than you by a decade. I watched Glow growing up. Nice. So not only that, nice. yeah, I, I watched the documentary. I've watched the TV show on Netflix, which I'm bummed they canceled it. Mark Maron was yeah. phenomenal. So yeah, of course, I know Glow. I'm friends with a lot of the girls now, which is amazing. But so I had watched the documentary and that also inspired me a lot because they weren't athletes. They were models and actresses who got cast for a show. Then they moved to Las Vegas, had to learn how to wrestle, and then started wrestling for television. And in my head, I thought if these girls who are not athletes can go to wrestling school and learn, then I can as well. You know, and to me, that was perfect. I was like, I'm moving to Vegas, just like the Glow Girls. And so I went and uh, I lived in like the hotels for like six months. So like every week, pretty much, I would move to a different hotel because of the prices. You were deal shopping, huh? Yeah, because Vegas is really cheap during the week and really expensive during the weekend. So you can't stay in the same hotel on the weekend. You got to find some cheap place to go because it goes from like $45 a night to $300 a night. Yeah. So it was this half hour. Every weekend you have to find somewhere to go. <laughs> um, but it was great because I was going through my separation, my divorce, and it was the perfect thing for me to do, honestly. It was how I learned how to be alone. It was in Las Vegas. But I was alone and I was surrounded by people. I was surrounded by light. I was surrounded by movement. So in a way, I didn't feel alone. So Vegas, like, taught me how to be by, by myself you know it really got me through like a lot of tra- of fear of being alone yeah so I was in school for um about six months then eventually I couldn't take it anymore because I was drinking in Vegas of course I still drank at the time um so I would drink at night and go to school bump hungover during the day so for those that don't know, bump is the is learning to fall, like do a flat back bump so you land proper, not to tuck your chin. It, I'm just telling people, it fucking hurts. Okay, I've done it once. Once was enough. Let alone never hung over. Right. I remember being in school like it was the third day, and I hadn't taken a bump yet, and they were like, "Has the new girl taken a bump?" And I was like terrified, like I didn't want them to figure out that I hadn't taken a bump yet because I didn't want to do it. And I was like, no. And they were like, you should have done it on the first day because that's, you know, what what establishes whether you can become a professional wrestler or not. If you take a bump and you don't come back the next day, then, you know, this is not for you. So let's do it. Let's take a bump. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, ter- it's terrifying. But I love it actually now. <laughs> yeah, everybody says you just kind of build up a... a, a of an ability to, to, to take it. I think really the first part of it is that fear. I mean, it's... Have I gone through more painful things? Yeah, but it there is something still very odd about. I mean, I'm like yeah, the fact that you have to take, take both of your feet off the ground feels so unnatural, right? You're like, what? <laughs> yeah, it's it, it is, and and so much of it is just professional wrestling in, in general is counterintuitive. It's it's that way with so many things. Like I've done Brazilian Jiu Jitsu off and on for a decade. It's, there's so much counterintuitive to it, but you yeah. get hooked. So yeah, that's how that happens. <laughs> how did you get on Billy Corgan's radar then with the NWA? So I had been in the school for six months. 
eventually I came back to LA because I couldn't handle being in Vegas anymore. Like I said, I was drinking. I was spending shitload of money in the hotels. I didn't have a job in Vegas, so I was just spending money and going to school and drinking. Um, so I went back home, started training with um, a local wrestler called Rice Isaac, who was on the end of the way. Um, but something happened coincidentally, not connected to him. So I had been in a Smashing Pumpkins music video before, Silvery Sometimes. Really? Um, as, as a Smashing Pumpkins fan. Like, I grew up a Smashing Pumpkins fan. Um, I was cast for that video. So I knew Billy from the video. I knew him, like, from music industry stuff because I, I worked as a music uh, writer as well. He had actually come to my building for a concert at some point. Um, so I kind of knew him. Like, I wasn't, like, really good friends with him, but I knew him. Um, he came to my page, and on the day that he came to my page, <clears throat> crazy, wild story, I was wearing a Smashing Pumpkins shirt in front of the school, in the ring, and on my bio it said Future Star of Wrestling, because that was the name of the school. Um, and Billy messaged me out of the blue. I got a message from Billy Corgan, and he goes, hey, Myra, are you wrestling? And I said, well, not exactly. I'm in school. I just started. <laughs> <laughs> um, I hadn't had my debut match yet or anything like that. I'm still learning. And, he, and we started talking about it. And he said, would you like to come work for the NWA? And I was like, yeah, of course. But I'm still in school. This and this and that. He's like, no problem. You can continue to train, or, to train uh, with Royce. And, you know, you can start out as a manager, rest, uh, valet, and build yourself up. So just like that, in six months, I joined the NWA. So it worked out. My crazy idea, once again, worked out. <laughs> uh, yeah, of course, May Valentine. How did you get the name May Valentine? Did he? Did somebody give it to you, or did you pick that? Yes. <laughs> so Billy was trying to find the name for me, and uh, we thought of May because May was like my teenage nickname, so it wasn't too far off, like I was going to become Anna or something. Right. Uh, <laughs> I always think it's so funny when people have completely different names because I don't think I could get used to being like Julie or something. (laughs) (laughs) Your head wouldn't exactly whip around, right? I was like, okay, May works for me because that was my nickname when I was a a teenager. And he he thought it sounded kind of like old Hollywood, like May West or something. And uh, we didn't know the last name. Um, He thought something like girly or he said Lockhart. But I have a friend whose last name is Lockhart, Leia Lockhart. And I told him, no, not Lockhart, because I have a friend with that name. And then when I was training with Royce, I actually trained at David Arquette's house in LA. Because David Arquette owned a wrestling ring in his backyard. And he was letting me use it for training. So David was there on this day where I was discussing what my name was going to be. And he said, how about May Valentine? And I thought, you know what? That's it. It sounds perfect. And I get to say that Billy Corgan and David Arquette came up with my name. So I don't think there's anything better than that. Let's do it. Maybe all time. I dig it. I dig it. Boy, have you, uh, not to segue to somebody else, but have you watched David Arquette's? I've been trying to speak with him for years. Um, Have you watched the documentary with him where he was in that? that, Oh, God, that was so like... I, I love yes. wrestling, but I do not get hardcore shit. Like, you will oh, get me to leave. Yeah. That's when he got tough. sliced. 
tough to watch. That's a great documentary, though, for yeah. anyone out there. You can't yeah. kill David Arquette. Yeah, I, I, that, that's really what spawned. Like, you know, I, I always enjoyed him as an actor, and 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 I was probably one of the few people that dug his WCW run back in the day. Um, but it was like watching that. I was like, wow, this guy's just fascinating as hell. But anyways, back to you. I definitely related to that too. Like where he's an actor and nobody believes he's going to become a wrestler. And there he goes and fucking does it. Yeah. You know, so I, I definitely relate to him as well. I kind of just dig people that decide that they want to do something and do it because I've lacked that a lot in life. And I'm really trying to change my mindset about me, you know? And um, so, yeah, I loved it. But anyways, this isn't about me. It's about you. Let me ask you then going through the things that you did, how do you frame for yourself? You know, now you're, you're in playboy. It's, it's a foreign issue, right? Playboy is playboy Denmark. Playboy. No, I was going to say, it was also on FHM US that just came out a couple of days ago. So how do you frame that with the things that you've kind of been through and knowing that sometimes you look for outward validate, like, like you do what you do and you you're great at your career, but how do you, how do you kind of frame that or keep maybe ego in check? I don't, I'm not sure, you know, I I'm trying to understand, you know, your processing of it. And I think that it doesn't matter what happens to me. It doesn't change my ego. Mm. Like, honestly, I feel that, you know, some of the biggest things in the world can happen. I can meet some of the biggest, you know, celebrities in the world or accomplish things that, you know, other people think are incredible. And it just doesn't change how I think or how I feel in any way. It maybe gives me a sense of like pride or accomplishment, but I don't have an ego problem. I've never had. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. I was really curious about that. You know, no, knowing your, your, you know, some of your, your history and the trials that you've been through and, and just, you know, how you frame that. Sometimes I even think that I have a little bit of like imposter syndrome where, you know, somebody will say to me like, Oh, you're a playmate. You're on the cover of playboy. And I go, I guess, Yeah. you know, and I I don't feel like it. Yeah. I go like, yeah, I guess I did that. You know, I I, thank you. Cause now I I, like, I know what you're saying. I've had people like, Oh my God, you went and talked with Charlie Sheen a couple of times. And it's like, yeah, I hope at least one listener, maybe it helped them get sober or whatever. It's like, it's just part of what I do. Like, I don't, you know, when I, you know what I'm saying. I don't understand what you're saying. It's hard to put it in words, but yes, it, it doesn't change anything for me. Rather than at that moment, I think, hey, I did this really cool thing and I hope people, you know, listen to it or like it too. Yeah. But I don't feel like, oh my God, you know, I'm playboy model i've done this or that like i don't think i could ever feel like that because the reality is inside i still feel like well i haven't done enough i have to do more yeah and and i don't know about you none of it none of the people that i've met or conversations from a personal just me my own ego standpoint took away any of my character defects and things i struggled with but i'll sure as hell tell you that like after this episode's released and maybe a young lady, young man, or anybody reaches out and goes, wow, I didn't know that about her. That really helped me continue to stay sober, want to get sober, confront my mental health issues. That fills me up. 
Exactly. That is a moment when, at least for that moment, I feel like I accomplished something. And sometimes that feels better than even like, oh, I'm on the TV show, I'm, I met the celebrity, or I'm on the cover of this magazine. Like, I think that the real meaningful things sometimes mean more, yeah. you know, because being on the cover of the magazine, this or that, it's the, it's the same dopamine high. You know, you're going to see the cover of the magazine and be really happy, but then the next day, you're still you. I, I compare it to my fictitious Porsche. I'm a, I'm a car guy. One day I will own a Porsche. I haven't yet, but it's the, I've already been able to frame. I'll be able to go, eh, I own a Porsche. My life isn't any different. It's just, just a different car. That's it. That's all yeah, it is. You accomplish something, and then you look for something else that you want to accomplish. Exactly. And is it ever, is it ever enough? I yeah. was thinking about this yesterday. Like, what do I need to be fulfilled? God, please help me. Uh, I think he being of service to others and, uh, he, you know, like you said, I think that's just, that's the ultimate purpose. You know what I'm saying? Cause much like you, maybe there's going to be a young lady now. She didn't think she would be able to get into the ring and, and here's your story and wants to do it or heck anybody, yeah. you know, with anything you're like, to me, it's inspirational. That, that's and it's similar to when my book came out and became a bestseller, it became a bestseller because teenagers related to how real I was about the problems that I was having or even now that I'm speaking openly about uh, my alcoholism and drug addiction I only recently started speaking about it it's only been like a couple of months and it's something that I'm really enjoying it I know that every single time I have a conversation I'm going to leave the conversation fulfilled and you know dare I say it's more fulfilling than other stuff than that people you know, wants to have so bad. Yeah. Like materialistic things or fame or. Yeah. And those are fine. There's nothing wrong with them if they happen, but well, it's. Really yeah. It's different for, for everybody. Of course, other people might find fulfillment in those things. Uh, yeah. How do I know? I don't know. Maybe they do. I don't know. Uh, I like to finish up with some uh, fun, random questions and I leave you with the final thought, but people want to find out more about you. Uh, what What's the best way you want me to put your uh, Instagram link in the podcast description? Mm -hmm. Instagram. All right. These are just fun, random questions so we can have finish up with some shits and giggles here. The Knockin' Doors Down book shares all the history and inspiration behind the Carlos Vieira Foundation and how it all started. All proceeds from the book benefit the Carlos Vieira Foundation's Race to Be Drug-Free campaign. So what's that all about? Through the Race to Be Drug-Free campaign, Carlos Vieira Foundation raises awareness about drug abuse, donates to drug-free programs, and brings drug-free speakers into schools to educate youth. The Race to Be Drug-Free campaign's main program is the Gloves Not Drugs boxing program. This program is completely free for kids between the ages of 8 and 17 to learn discipline, strength, respect, camaraderie, and the art of boxing. The program was created to keep kids off the streets, out of gangs, and away from drugs. For more info and to get involved, check out carlosvierafoundation.org. Last song you intentionally played. Um, I was just listening to Getting Away with Murder by Papa Roach. I got okay. I still listen to Papa Roach like today intensely a lot. <laughs> I've got a Papa Roach story you might enjoy. So that album just came out 
and the radio station I was working for at the time, we did a show with them and it was on my birthday. And so I got to go on stage and introduce them for my birthday and stage dive. Uh, yeah, it was pretty badass. It was pretty cool. I'm, I'm good friends with them. Like I, I, I met them for the first time when I was 14 years old. <laughs> yeah. Uh oh, oh, I know that story. <laughs> Wait, let's not confuse that with another story. Oh, that's the other story, huh? Okay. That is not the story about going to the hotel room. Okay. Let's just keep that straight. It's okay. a different story where I went to the hotel, to the pool of a hotel, and had lunch with Papa Roach at the pool during Rock and Rio. That's oh. how I met him. Yeah. Oh, gotcha. God, I've always wanted to go to Rock and Rio. I hope to visit someday. Um, wow. If you... If you could give your uh, younger self uh, any piece of advice, what would you give the, give you? Say, um, just be patient with yourself. Treat yourself with kindness. And all the things you want are going to come true, girls. So don't sit around and cry all day long because the things that you want haven't happened yet. They will. Do you have a favorite sport? Well, wrestling. Yeah. Other than wrestling, I mean, you grew up in Brazil. I'm assuming you got inundated with soccer like nobody's business. I was never a soccer girl. Never. Like, I, the only kind of sports that I, I watched, really, were, like, martial arts, like MMA and boxing and now wrestling. Yeah. I was never, like, a soccer person, ever. Growing up in Brazil, there was never the Formula One influence. I mean, you get the home of Arndt and Senna. Come on, my friend. I remember mostly when I was a child, when I still felt I was still alive. But my dad used to watch Formula One. Yeah, I remember that. And my brother, Guilherme, actually raced for a while. Really? Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, that's uh, that's one of those things in my heart, you know. I just uh, I grew up loving him, and boy, what a sad, tragic thing as well. I feel like I'm a music girl, not a sports girl, when I was growing up, and then it was only when I got older that I got into, you know, physical activity at all. <laughs> uh, um, how about a new band that's out there that maybe hasn't really gotten big yet that's catching your ear? I don't know. I don't know. I'm not in sync with the new band, but if anyone has that answer, please let me know because I'd love to find some new bands. I listen to the same stuff that I listened to 20 years ago. Okay. For real. Like, I'm still listening to the same Molly Crew, Marjorie Rose, my playlist Or, like, some, sometimes I'll randomly go on Spotify and put, like, best songs of 1999, best songs of, like, 2001. <laughs> I love the old stuff. Well, you got to tell me you you've had to have listened to the new Smashing Pumpkins triple album, right? I just went to their concert a couple of days ago. Oh, how was it? I think I've reached out to to Billy, the record representative. I'm hoping he'll agree to come on this podcast, and I think I'm going to see him. They're actually playing in Northern California either on my birthday or the day before, so I'm hoping to go. I'm trying to make that connection for sure. Oh, wow. Thank you. Um, but yeah. yeah, how was it live? I mean, did they play a lot of the new stuff? They didn't play a lot of the new stuff. They played a lot of the old stuff. Yeah. Really? I haven't listened to all the songs because it's 33 songs. Oh, yeah. It's... it's 33 songs. 
but I'm about to do that today. Actually, it just came out uh, yesterday. Yeah, I uh, on the way to L.A., I threw it on and just it was my drive, and it was like, oh, you did. It's good, and and I would love to tell him because I'm like. When he said the line, I used to be a little boy, like still, it gives me chills and tears. And, and and now there's a lot of that beauty of the Smashing Pumpkins, too. Like, I love Bullet with Butterfly Wings. I've been learning to play Zero. And, you know, I dig the rock. Like, Beguiled is a badass song off the new album. But, yeah. like, um, yeah, there's a lot of beautiful. You're going to be surprised. I think you're going to really be moved by some of it. Yeah. And I recommend The Who. You might dig a Mongolian rock band and they do a lot of cool features with people. So it's the who? Yeah. The H U. The who. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. They did a song with Jacoby from Papa Rose. They did do one with him and they just had one with um why am I blanking on his name? Robert De- not Robert Duvall. That's the actor. Um he he sings with Allison Chains now, and I'm drawing a blank. Um, but it's badass. You'll dig them. Yeah, I've heard of that. I just haven't gotten into it. You'll dig it. All right, back to random questions. Sorry, it's, uh, I don't get to talk with many other people that are music fans. So uh, if you could have one superpower, what would it be? Um, read people's minds. Yeah. Why? That scares the shit out of me. I would love to know what people are thinking. But would you really? Yeah, I would. I mean, think about your own thoughts. I have some pretty fucked up thoughts, Myra. I don't know that I'd want want to hear those other thoughts that people have. No, maybe you could turn it on and off whenever you wanted, and you could be like, oh, let me see what she's thinking. Turn on, turn off, then that would work. Okay, I'll give you that. I don't think it would be be good if you were just walking around listening to everybody's thoughts. That would be messed up. Yeah, that would just scare me. Like, I just, yeah, I, I sometimes I'd hate to to uh, think about that. Um, one last random question. I'll leave you with the final thoughts. Uh, what is something about you that people would be surprised to learn? God, I think I'm an open book. I tell, I tell you everything there is to know about myself. Something that people would be surprised, well... I hope to keep surprising people. I think that I am constantly trying to grow and reinvent myself. And, you know, I'll surprise my people that follow follow me with like, I I am a professional wrestler now, or yeah. I'm a Playboy cover model now. So I guess I just hope to continue to have the capacity to reinvent myself and surprise people with things that I don't even know are coming. Yeah. Uh, I gotta ask as someone that I'm not as covered with you, uh, tattoos yet, but, uh, favorite tattoo. You can't do that. It's like choosing between your children. You just can't. I like all my tattoos, like even the bad ones. They all have some sort of meaning. Yeah. Uh, yeah, for sure. I have many tattoos. <laughs> I, I know some of our, I like my dad's like, you're not going to get anything on your hands. Are you? I'm like, I don't know. I might have mentioned. I know. My favorite one. Yeah. I just said that's my favorite one. I literally just contradicted myself. There you it go. It is not my favorite one. It is one of my favorite <laughs> That's all right. Uh, hey, this has been a real pleasure. It's uh, it's it's 
been a joy to watch you with NWA, and uh, I'm I'm excited to uh, see more of it. And uh, here's my butchering of Portuguese. Tell me if I still remember to say it right. Uh, muito obrigado. Right. Muito obrigado. <laughs> yeah. If there's anything that you would want to lend to someone listening, just any advice of the stuff that you've been through, maybe some inspiration, encouragement, what might that be? Well, I think that if you are suffering from the disease of addiction, if you are having a problem, you know, and you're afraid of coming to terms with it, you're afraid of admitting it to yourself. I think that once you are able to admit it to yourself and take that step to say out loud that you have a problem, um, there are so many people out there who will support you. The sober community is such a supportive community and there is so much hope for you. And I think that once you learn to be open and vulnerable and self-aware, those very things become your superpower. And, you know, there's hope for you out there. This is the Knocking Doors Down podcast, featuring celebrities, experts, and everyday people who have overcome adversities, including addiction, mental health, and trauma to live purposeful lives. And that's what Knocking Doors Down is all about.